Hello and welcome to the Mind Springs podcast with me, Alastair Appleton. I hope you enjoy what you hear, and if you'd like to find out more about us, then visit mind-springs.org. So I just wanted to say a little bit about that path. So that was the the body as a battlefield. But there has been, parallel to that, a long tradition of seeing the body actually as a Buddha field, as a field of enlightenment, as the very ground of liberation from all of the things that we've just been talking about. Because if we really turn towards the body in its fullest sense, not only is it a relief from that anxiety and uh, there's a great pleasure in it, but it's also the path into true liberation, true freedom. And when we're truly free, then we can truly help other people. We're no longer passive victims of our society, but we, from a place of embodiment, we can actually do something to help people. We can connect to people. We can be real, in the Buddhist terminology, bodhisattvas. We can really make a difference. But we can't do that from our heads. We have to be embodied. And there is, fortunately for us, a a long, long tradition of amazing teachers and teachings that have survived incredibly have survived thousands of years being passed from one practitioner to another and they come down to us through a kind of very serpentine way they come down to us here and now in the in 2019 and so I just wanted to very briefly I'm conscious of the time wanted to very briefly outline that uh, path essentially what we're talking about here is tantra which is a very ancient uh, branch of eastern philosophy that goes back into the mist of time, but certainly four, or four to five thousand years ago into the yogic, yogic traditions of the Ganges Delta. Um, but the, the, the Tantra that we are lucky enough to have in our midst now was really uh, explored and uh, developed by um, Buddhist practitioners about a thousand years after the death of the historical Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha. Uh, in India, by um, what's, known as, what's known as Siddhas, so outside of the monastic uh, university settings, which was huge uh, in the thousand years after, after the Buddha, there were and had always been these yogic practitioners, Siddhas, who lived often outside of the uh, monastic setting, often outside of the caste system as well. They were often untouchables. They would be doing... Um, They would often be married, so it would be male and female practitioners. They might be doing untouchable work. Um, And they certainly didn't have the kind of sort of smart Apollonian kind of caste of of the monastic Buddhists at that time. They were much more on the Dionysian side of things. And in their practice, they saw the body and every uh, manifest thing in the world as sacred. So there are traditions in, in, in Eastern philosophy and even in, in Buddhism that see the body as essentially as corrupt or as corruptible. You know, Theravadan um, Buddhists often chant a list of all the constituent parts of the body, including shit, piss, pus. So this is a very kind of disturbing chant that you do every morning where you kind of list all the constituent parts of the body because to become attached to the body is pointless because the body will die. 
The tantric path is somewhat different because rather than uh, transcending the uh, corruptible parts of existence, they take a more imminent view that actually it's the very process, the constant shifting process of life and death, growth and decay, that allows us to access the true sacredness of life. It doesn't exist somewhere else. There is no pure land outside of our bodies, outside of vegetation, outside of buildings and people and interactions. The enlightenment is in the stuff. And the body, particularly in these, with these early practitioners, was the, the stuff par excellence. So Saraha, who was one of these siddhas, was asked, you know, do you want to come on, we're going on pilgrimage, we're going to this holy site. And he goes, no. There is no more fabulous pilgrimage than my own body. Everything that is holy is within this fathom-long body. And there's a, there was an emphasis on, the, on things like sex, sexuality, the uh, appetites of the body, um, the decay and growth of the body as being the very thing that we need to turn towards in, in order to become alive, to become truly alive. And this, this tradition wove through a lot of Indian uh, mystics, a lot of Indian practitioners, and eventually ended up in Tibet, uh, where it was kind of kept sacred by the ring of the Himalayas for thousands of years, long after the Indian traditions had been wiped out. And then this is how it's come back to us, as I'm sure many of you are aware, that the Chinese invasion of, of Tibet in 1950 drove many Tibetans into exile. And tragic as that was, it was a great gift to the world because a lot of those teachings were then brought into the West. Um, Christine, Jenny, and I, and lots of other people are connected with the Samiling um, a monastery in Dumfries, which owns Holy Island, which is a place I'm very attached to. And that was, that was a great example of Akon Rinpoche and Chogyon Trungpa Rinpoche coming out of Tibet under very uh, difficult circumstances with these teachings and uh, implanting them in the West. Akon Rinpoche in Scotland and Chogyon Trungpa in America, where he then became my teacher, Reggie Ray's teacher, in the 1970s. And Reggie, um, Trumpa died back in the 80s, Reggie has taken these teachings of direct experience, this, uh, that everything in life is sacred, and developed a very powerful way of making those, those teachings come alive by concentrating on the body as the vehicle for these teachings to, to um, come alive for us. So he talks variously about embodied meditation or somatic meditation. So the soma is the opposite to the psyche. So the psyche is our thinking mind. The soma is the embodied experience. And he, over the last, well, he's been practicing 40, 60 years, but it's certainly in the last 20 years since he left the, the Shambhala organization, has developed a very radical and I think incredibly powerful set of teachings uh, which are at the beginning of the path, as he outlines it, which are about coming out of our thinking minds into our bodies. Because he emphasizes, and I think he's entirely right, that we cannot think our way to enlightenment. We taste enlightenment and we taste it with our bodies. 
And we have to train ourselves because we've been so entrained by culture and society to be in our left brains, in our conceptual minds. We have to retrain ourselves to come back into the joy of the body. And the joy of the body is also the complexity, the depth, the gritty, gnarly, difficult, painful truths of the body. And that by really kind of connecting to these things, then we wake up. When we exit the body, we fall asleep. We're lulled into a kind of semi-dissociated, sleepwalking state where we're very vulnerable to the um, incursions of capitalism and consumerism and big power and anxiety um, inducing politicians because we're just in a, this miasma of thought. But when we come back into the body, when we really anchor ourselves in the body, then an enormous sense of power and empowerment becomes ours. We start to feel our own presence, we start to feel our own power, we feel empowered, and we start to be able to connect. Because those things about the body that the ego finds really disturbing, its spontaneity, its, its unpredictability, its, its connection, its animal kind of roots, are precisely the thing that allow us to connect with one another. It's very difficult to connect and help people if we're just thinking about them. All that really does is turn them into an object of our thought and then we end up in a kind of just intellectual kind of way of helping them. If we can really truly be present to our body and tolerate our own pain, then we're going to be able to tolerate other people's pain and indeed welcome it and help them. So coming into our body is really the, also the beginning of compassion, the way of really connecting in the world. It makes us braver, it makes us stronger, it makes us wiser because the body's intuitive, spontaneous uh, knowledge, which the ego fears, is actually very wise. If we trust our body, if we come to trust our body, then we tend to make much better decisions. But primarily, it allows us to connect. Connect to the wonder of being alive, to the beauty of the world around us, but also to the reality of other people, which from a Buddhist point of view is really the, the center of the whole mandala. Compassion, the ability to really be present with others. Thank you for listening and please do join us again.